It's a joy to be here with you this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, uh, you can turn to Philippians chapter 3. I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 2, rather, and uh, we'll be reading from verses 12 through 18. Philippians chapter 2, reading verses 12 through 18. All right, let's hear God's word together. This is Paul writing to the church of Philippians. He says this in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is God's word. When I was growing up, uh, there was a children's book about Michael Jordan that I remember enjoying greatly. Michael Jordan, the famous basketball player, and it was written by his mother, and the title of the book was called Salt in His Shoes. Michael Jordan, you may or may not know, as a young man, was actually particularly short and had a hard time making it on the court. And one day he came home distressed about this, and his mom turned to him and she said, Michael, I have a solution. Salt. Salt in your shoes. We'll put salt in your shoes and we'll pray every night. And so that's what Mrs. Jordan did and the story goes on. And obviously we know now Michael Jordan is one of the, if not the most famous basketball players ever. But I remember reading that story and wondering, wouldn't it be nice if it was just that easy? If all I had to do was put salt in my shoes and I could be taller or better. And for all of us as people, most of us are looking for ways to grow. And by grow, I don't just mean in terms of inches, but even our own personal and spiritual improvement. And usually people are looking for the quickest way to get the best results. And so you'll have, uh, you know, a five-day juice cleanse that will make your skin radiant. Or the gym program that in a matter of two weeks, you will be more in better shape than you've ever been. There's whole sections in bookstores dedicated to self-help, right? Becoming productive and, and improving in your career. But when we're honest with ourselves, we know that oftentimes growth doesn't come that easy. Oftentimes the greatest growth comes at great cost to ourselves. It's not as easy as just putting salt in our shoes. And as Christians, we should desire to grow as well. Second Peter, or Peter, in Second Peter, he puts it this way. He says that we are called to grow in the grace of and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a call to grow in grace. And that really is the title of this morning's message, is growing in grace. It's a call, as we see here in Philippians, to Christian maturity. But how does that happen? And that's really what we're going to focus on this morning, is answering the question of how do you and I grow in grace? What does that actually look like? Or to put it another way, how do we live out in every area of our lives the salvation that we've received in Jesus Christ? How do we make that salvation evident 
in the way that we live in the world. And I want to focus this morning on three things coming from the text that we've just read, and that is the method for growing in grace, the results, and the reward. The method, the results, and the reward. So let's begin by thinking about together the method for growing in grace. We began in reading verse 12, and verse 12 begins with this single word, therefore. Now, whenever you see that word, you have to realize that we're coming into the middle of an argument. We need to realize what has come before it. What is the, the point that Paul is trying to make? Well, just before verse 12, in verses 2 through 8, Paul has just spent a good portion praising Jesus Christ. What some people have often called the Christ hymn. It's an anthem to the humility and the obedience of Jesus. As verse 8 puts it, that Jesus became obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. And now in verse 12, Paul says, therefore, he wants to make a connection between the obedience of Jesus and now this call to obedience that he's going to put forth to the Christians at Philippi. And so what Paul is saying is saying, look, Jesus became obedient even to the point of dying a death on a cross. Therefore, you too must live a life of obedience. And so already, right from the start, we're beginning to see what the method to maturity is. And to put it simply, the method to maturity is obedience. The way that you and I become more and more like Jesus Christ, is to obey what he has revealed in his word. It's, it's to die to our sin and to live more and more unto righteousness. And so there really are no shortcuts to growth. There is no salt-in-the-shoes method to Christian maturity. Instead, it's a call to obey what God has said to us. We have to be, as James puts it, not only hearers of the word, but doers also. But there's more to it, because Paul begins to kind of paint a bigger and more vivid picture of what it means to obey. Well, he tells us this, answering that question at the end of verse 12. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, you may read that verse, and it might be a bit unsettling. Isn't this Paul who believes in that we're saved by grace through faith? Why is he telling us to work and to do so with fear and trembling? It sounds odd if we're honest to our ears at first. So, so what could he possibly mean when he says this? Well, it's helpful to realize in the first place what he doesn't mean. Paul is not saying that we have to work for our salvation. The basic impulse of the fallen human heart is to work for its salvation. If you were to ask any person in the world, generally what they mean, what they believe will get them to heaven, the the common denominator, the, the universal religion of humanity is, I do good things, I present those good things to God, and then he blesses me. This is kind of our default setting. We think that if I'm a good person, then God will bless me and ultimately he'll let me into eternity. But it's this kind of theology, this idea of, I can do good things to earn God's favor that Paul completely rejects. He opposes it. If you remember in Ephesians chapter 2, that famous verse, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And so if you think, or I think, that I can earn my salvation through my goodness, then I need to reassess my understanding. Because the Bible opposes that kind of thinking. 
Because in light of the obedience of Christ, his perfect obedience, there really is no room to add to that. We can't add to the obedience of Jesus Christ. And so if that's not what Paul is saying, what does he mean? What does he mean when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Theologian Sinclair Ferguson, I think, puts it helpfully when he says this. He says, we are not to work for our salvation or work it up, but work it out. That is, to make sure that its influence and implications permeate the whole of our lives. In other words, what Paul is saying is that we're not working for our salvation as if we could earn it, nor are we trying to work it up as if we could, through self-talk and motivation, kind of get there ourselves, but instead, we are working out the salvation that we already have received in Christ. We're working out what Christ himself, by his spirit, has worked in. That's what's going on. And this really is the message of the gospel. Because Jesus Christ did what you and I could never do. He obeyed perfectly, even to the point of death. So that all who repent, who turn from their unbelief and sin and believe on him, that they might actually receive the righteousness of Christ. His good, perfect record becomes ours through faith. And it's in light of that glorious truth that we're then called to respond by living out a lifelong process of obedience to the one who loved us and gave himself for us. And that really is one of the key words there, lifelong obedience. Sometimes people can view the Christian life as kind of a hundred meter dash, just sprint really hard. But it really, it, it is a marathon. It's, it's, a pro, it's a lifelong process of continually learning what it means to come under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And I think this point becomes even more clear when we really understand what Paul means when he talks about salvation. Typically, or sometimes, when people think about salvation, they'll refer to that initial moment in their life when they became a believer in Jesus Christ. And so when you mention salvation, people may think of the time that they raised their hand or walked an aisle or signed a card or perhaps had a moment in their bedroom. But for Paul, when he's talking about salvation, he wants to broaden our understanding. He wants us not only to consider that initial moment, but he wants us to be thinking in terms of our total salvation. I think there's an illustration that can help kind of get across what I'm saying. There's a story of a 19th century English scholar. His name was Bishop Bishop B.F. Westcott. And one day, um, Bishop Westcott was walking on the streets of London where he, where he was teaching, where he taught. And this passionate evangelist type came up to him and he says, Brother, are you saved? Now, probably he was expecting a simple yes or no answer. But Bishop Westcott says this. He says, Brother, I was, I was saved when Jesus paid the penalty for my sin on the cross. I am being saved by the power of his life and I shall be saved when I see him as he is. See, the point that Bishop Westcott was making is that as believers in Jesus Christ, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are currently being saved from the power of sin. And the day is coming when we will be delivered from the presence of sin in our lives. Past, present, and future. God is concerned with all of that. Not merely the moment when we said a prayer or raised a hand or whatever it may be. And so this salvation that we have received 
by grace through faith is one that is concerned with all of us. Jesus Christ desires to transform our thinking, our desires, our actions, our speech. And while it's true that perfection will never be attained while we have breath in our lungs, that's where we're headed. We are headed towards perfection. And Jesus Christ will not settle for anything less. And the confidence that we're receiving here is that he will bring us there himself. C.S. Lewis illustrates this point beautifully in Mere Christianity. He says this, he says, Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. And at first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in such a way that it hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought. Throwing out a new wing here, putting an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace and he intends to live in it himself. See, far too often we settle with being a nice little cottage, but Jesus Christ is changing us, transforming us into a palace that he himself is going to dwell in. But there's even more. Notice what Paul says in verse 13. He says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do, for his good pleasure. These verses, really, verse 12 and verse 13, provide for us one of the beautiful tensions that runs throughout Scripture. The tension between God's sovereign work in the life of believers and our own responsibility. Have you ever wondered, how do those two things work? How is it that God is completely in control and yet I am responsible to act? Well, we see here in these two verses how this is possible. And there's often two mistakes that people will make. On the one hand, people will tend to overemphasize verse 12. They'll read, work out your own salvation, and they think, all right, this is up to me. And they kind of maybe think of their salvation like a group project. All right, Lord, I'll do 50%, you do 50%, and we'll make it happen. Or if they're really spiritual, right, I'll do 90% and you can just take care of the 10%. I don't want to burden you. But as we've seen, that's clearly not right. But the opposite mistake is to focus solely on verse 13. To hear Paul say that it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And you think, great, Christianity has an autopilot feature. I don't really need to do anything because after all, it's God who's working in me. So I'll just sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride. But that, too, is a wrong understanding. Instead, I think that what Paul is putting forth for us is three key truths that all hold together. The first truth is that salvation is God's gift. Salvation is God's gift. The second truth is that God's gift calls out, calls us to work out our salvation in every part of our lives. And thirdly, that we are to do this in the confidence that confidence of knowing that God is always at work within us to accomplish that goal. You see, it begins with God. Salvation is his gift. And it ends with God. It is he who is at work within us. But sandwiched in between that is our responsibility to do something, to respond in faith and obedience. And that really is what Paul is getting here at here. He's saying, Philippians, you have been saved by Jesus Christ, the one who became obedient to the point of death on a cross. And therefore, 
work out the salvation that God has worked in you, knowing that even as you work, he is the one who is empowering that process. You see, it's easy to read maybe verses 2 through 11, the Christ hymn, and think, all right, I have a model that I need to follow. But it's not enough that Jesus is our model. We need power. We need the ability. And so not only do we have the model, but we have the assurance that Christ, by his Spirit, is at work in us. That we have access to the very power that raised Christ from the dead. I think of another illustration that may be helpful here is to think of a tree. Imagine a tree that has a rotten root. Now, no matter how much sun you expose that tree to, no matter how much water you place on that tree, no matter how much um, fertilizer you may give it, it's not going to grow because the root is completely rotted out. It's ruined. And so if Paul were to, to say to us, work for your salvation, it would be the equivalent of saying to a rotten tree, grow. But the tree can't grow because the rot, the root is rotted out. It's just not going to happen. But now, imagine that you have a tree with a healthy root. Well, now you can add water, you can provide sunlight, you can give it fertilizer, and now what's going to happen? The tree is going to produce fruit. And the point of the illustration is this, is that when you and I believe in Jesus Christ, our rotten root is transformed for a healthy one. That our corrupt heart is transformed And now the Spirit of God is indwelling our hearts. A new power, a new root is at work. And it's because of this transformative work of God that we can obey. We can water, we can fertilize, we can expose ourselves to the sun, and things are going to happen. And this is one of the glorious truths about Christian maturity, is that it is an organic process. And what I mean by that is that because you have been saved by Christ, you are becoming what you already are in him. And that gives you assurance. Because the process of maturity isn't trying to become something you're not. But you're actually becoming who you already are in Christ. That's why Paul can say we are seated in the heavenly places with Jesus Christ. I don't feel like I'm seated in heaven sometimes, but that's the truth of me about me. That's why Paul can say in Romans that you were crucified with Christ and you were raised with him. I don't remember that. But because I've been united to him through faith, those things are true of me. They are true of you. And so now as you are submitting to Christ, abiding in him, you are maturing. And so that really is the method for growing in grace. But what are the results? What does a life that is maturing actually look like? day to day. Well, it looks like verses 14 through 15. Because in verses 14 through 15, Paul moves from this general command, this general call to obedience, to giving very specific examples of what that looks like. And he gives us two very concrete examples. He says that we will forsake grumbling and disputing. And secondly, that we will live as children who shine as lights in the world. Let's think first of all about this idea of forsaking grumbling and disputing. If you're familiar with the book of Philippians, one of the central themes in the book is unity in the church. Paul talks often about this idea of fellowship. And 
it's true that if you and I are going to be unified, if we are going to be effective partners in proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, then we cannot simultaneously be grumbling and disputing with one another. There's nothing that ruins gospel witness quicker than a complainer, a grumbler, a disputer. And I think we can see here a really clear connection between the people here in Philippi and the children of Israel when they were brought out of of Egypt in the wilderness. In Exodus 15 through 17, the Israelites come out from Egypt. They're unified under the banner of God's deliverance. And then in a matter of only three days, they begin to grumble. They begin to dispute. And what was the history of the first generation? They wandered in the desert and they died. And they didn't attain to the promised land that God had for them. And so grumbling and disputing are the opposite of working out our salvation. It's interesting that in Exodus 16, when the people are grumbling against Moses, that Moses confronts them. And he says this in verses 7 through 8. He says, why do you grumble against Aaron and I? Your grumbling is not against us. It is against the Lord. See, when we adopt a grumbling or a disputing spirit, we are actually denying the grace of God in our lives. We're failing to acknowledge the salvation that God has worked into us because our grumbling, our disputing, although it may be pointing horizontally at other people, ultimately it reflects a a heart that is vertically misaligned. It reflects a heart that is grumbling ultimately against God. And so we have to stop and to consider, how am I interacting with my brothers and sisters in the household of God? Am Am I quick to grumble about the leadership in the church? Am I bitter towards my fellow members? Are you the kind of person who enjoys hearing complaints about other people? Do you rejoice at the downfall of others? Do you have the type of heart that when dispute comes your way, you're you're excited, you view it as a game? Paul says that this type of spirit, this is not a mark of Christian maturity. But instead we are to be humble to treat others as more significant as ourselves, as he says earlier in this chapter in verses 2 to 3. And so grumbling has no place in the life of a person who has the Spirit of God. But the outcome isn't only negative. It's not just putting off grumbling and disputing, but it's also putting on. As Paul says, we are to be shining lights in the world. In other words, the church of Jesus Christ is to be a distinctive community to be without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. You can hear here the echoes of Jesus' words in his famous Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 when he calls on his disciples. He says, You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. And I love here that Paul and Jesus, their emphasis really is on community. You know, we've been talking a lot about how you need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But I think the danger sometimes is that we think about our personal holiness as an isolated thing. We think, okay, I need to make sure that I am holy before the Lord, and so I'm going to pursue that in my own life. But we miss out that God is doing a work in his, in his church, in the community as a whole. And so it's not merely something that I am doing, but, but it's a growth in grace that takes place in community. You notice that Paul says that you may be children, plural, of God. 
in the midst of a crooked generation, among whom you shine as lights, plural, in the world. And so the church together is to be this light that pierces into the darkness of the world and reflects back to the true source, Jesus Christ himself. I love even the words of Jesus as he says, you are a city set on a hill. Not a singular little hut set on a hill, a city. Think about New York, if you've ever seen the, 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 the skyline. Just all these massive structures bundled together in this bright light coming forth. And the church is likewise to be a community of people bundled together, shining forth the light of Christ. So we can summarize the outcome, the result of growing in grace like this. That as we work out our salvation, knowing that it is God who works in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, we will be a community marked not by grumbling and disputing, but instead we will be a community of humility and unity that shines as lights in a dark world. As one preacher puts it, Paul wants the church to be a proclaiming church and not a complaining church. (laughs) He wants the church to be a proclaiming church, not a complaining church. You know, there's so much to complain about often, and we're very good at finding reasons to complain. But a mark of Christian maturity is that we are growing in humility. We're growing in grace, and, and that's reflected in a life of witness. In a life not of grumbling and disputing, but a life of service. And so we've looked thus far at the method for growing in grace. We've looked at some of the results of growing in grace. But this may raise a question for us is, how are we going to maintain this kind of lifestyle? How are we going to be able to do this? Well, the most important thing that we've realized, and I've said it already, but it's a point that cannot be emphasized enough, is that we have to realize you and I have been saved by grace. Even as Pastor Nathan prayed, God has given us the gift of faith so that we might respond to him, to rest and receive Jesus Christ as he's offered to us in the gospel, and then respond in lifelong obedience. And so you and I can, first of all, have confidence, as Paul says in Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion. But I think Paul gives us another reason to be encouraged as we pursue Christian maturity. And that is our final point in verses 17 through 18. Or I'm sorry, verses 16 through 18, really focusing on the reward of growing in grace. And there really is one phrase that I want to draw out for us in verse 16. He says, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. See, Paul, as he labored, as he planted churches and preached the gospel, he had a goal in view. And his goal was to reach, to arrive at, the day of Christ. And the encouragement for you and for, uh, and for me is that as we are working out and running this process of lifelong obedience, we must keep our eyes glued on the final day, the day of Christ. When Paul refers to the day of Christ, he's talking about that day when we will see Jesus Christ as he is. When sin will be completely eradicated from our lives and from our world. And we will know the reward, the joy 
for what we were running for all along. To be able to hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. That is what we are running towards. That is a reward worth receiving. And we can't lose sight of that. Because when you are growing in grace, when you're pursuing maturity, when you're pursuing holiness, oftentimes the process can feel quite slow. There may be seasons of your life where it may seem that it's come even to a grinding halt. Perhaps you notice patterns of sin in your own life that you just wish you could get over, that you wish you could break free from. Or perhaps you look at those in your own family, people under your own roof, and you see the effects of pride and selfishness in their life, and your, your heart breaks for them because you want them to know the joy found in Jesus Christ. Well, where do you find encouragement? We find encouragement not only in knowing that it is God who's at work in us, but we also find encouragement in looking forward to the day when Christ will make all things new. The day when even our feeble and incomplete attempts at obedience are going to be swallowed up in the eternal joys of unbroken communion with God. The day where the righteousness that has been imputed to us through faith will actually be realized tangibly in our own lives. And so my question for you as you consider the reward, the day of Christ, is to ask yourself, what is the direction of your life? Where are you focused? Where are you banking your hope? Is your hope resting in that day? Because every other day will pass. Not every other day will bring its joys, but it will also bring great disappointment. But when you're focused on that day, the day of Christ, you can have confidence that as you're working out what God has already worked in, that your salvation awaits you. Your final salvation will come. And my prayer is that you would keep this in your heart. You would keep this in your mind. That your eyes would be focused on on Jesus Christ, trusting that growth will come. That slowly, over time, you will more naturally become who you already are in Christ through prayer, through fellowship, through attending to his word. And perhaps this will be slower than you hoped, but continue moving forward towards that reward of the final day, knowing that what God has begun, he will bring to completion. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we thank you for the promises of your word. For if we were just to look at our lives, we would be quite disappointed. But then we raise our eyes and we look to your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for this great and glorious promise that what you have begun you will complete. And that even now in our present lives, you are at work in us both willing and working for your good pleasure. And it's because of this great truth that we can then strive and and labor with all of the powerful work that you work in us, with your energy. So help us, God, to pursue Christian maturity. Help our lives to look more like Christ, to be less and less marked by grumbling and more and more marked by humility and service so that we might be lights in this world. And as we do it, Oh Lord, help our eyes to be fixed on that final day, on the reward of seeing you, the day of Christ. And we pray even now, Lord Jesus, come. And we ask these things in your mighty name. Amen. Amen.